I have just one thing to say to you. Welcome back to the Blood and Black Run Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSolitation.com, and I'm joined with my co-host, Martin. How's it going? Uh, we're doing well. We're we're knee-deep in Difficult Films Month, which we've been doing for the past couple episodes. We uh, we made May into Difficult Films Month. Um, is May a difficult time of year, do you think? Um, for us, yeah, because I think it's usually the month we go to for a uh, theme podcast. Yeah. I don't know. It's... Uh... I don't think it's a difficult time of year. I think, like, most people t- tend to think, like, January, February is a difficult time of year, especially around here because of the winter and you're just done with it all, done with staying inside. But May, I guess, could be a difficult time because it's transition. It's transition between, you know, springy, crappy winter still and summer. And in that transition, sometimes you get 50-degree days and then sometimes you're smack dab into a 90 degree day so and you know like what too the other day difficult... like we, let's say like we've been getting it right now mm-hmm yep it's gonna be 90 degrees uh this weekend so we're we're definitely right in the midst of that but another difficult thing about it is that it means that we're only halfway to halloween <laughs> oh no yeah it's very very difficult for me it's a reminder although you know what i start in like the end of august so we're getting closer. We're creeping up on it. But there was really no rhyme or reason why we picked May as Difficult Films Month. It just happened to fall into time where we had um, we had some time to devote to it. Um, and now we're kind of finding, like, we're getting backed up again. Like, Doctor Strange just re- uh, Doctor Strange 2 just released. So we've got to do try to get that in at some point and uh, a couple other things. But... You know, well, listen, it's not it's not our fault that Disney can't stop themselves from releasing seven films. Can't a stop, year. won't stop, and they're just they're they're churning them out even more now. They just announced like that they're a little Disney con or whatever they do. They just announced a few more things like Taika Waititi is going to be directing a new Star Wars movie, and they've got another new series coming out, and they've got some more Marvel mo- uh, shows in the on the back burner. They just released the trailer for She Hulk the tv show it's like just take a step back guys just getting tired they're making they're making you commit like oh you like they really you like are st- you like star wars you like marvel yep. you like star trek this is gonna be your pick, life now <laughs> pick one I, re- yeah i mean to be pick honest, one to be honest with you like and i've been trying to follow that stuff too like i've been trying to follow the disney tv shows for star wars because i really enjoyed you know like 
uh, The Mandalorian, and and I've been trying to follow all the Marvel shows, and it's like at a certain point, yeah, that becomes your life. You're like, fuck, fucking, I gotta, ca- oh man, I gotta catch up on this one, and it's become almost like the, like comic books now too, to the point where you're like, oh wait a second, like if I didn't watch the Book of Boba Fett, I'm not gonna get Mandalorian season three because it had parts of the Mandalorian in it, and it's like becoming tie-ins and upon it's, tie-ins it's now. It's the same. No, you're absolutely right. They took the the comic book. See, and that's another reason why. I haven't really gotten the comic books because it's just like an endless rabbit hole. Like you'll be reading a book and then like, but wait, there's 12 tie-ins that you have to read. And don't mm-hmm. you want to know what Booster Gold's doing at this time period too? Mm-hmm. That There's going to be one thing in, in, in a random, uh, a random, you know, series of that, that like it's going to tie back into this, the main story <laughs> you're reading too. You know. For people with OCD, that's really difficult because... You feel like, oh, well, nah, you're like kind of like a chicken with its head cut off, like following, like, oh, now I gotta go to that one. Oh, now I'm gonna read all that. Oh, now I gotta get to this one. Uh, and now you're like, you know, you're seven steps away from where you first started. That's, it's really bad for OCD people. And they capitalize on that. And they're like, ah, we love it. <laughs> Keep paying that Disney Plus. You don't need any other subscriptions. So, yeah. But we're not here to talk about Disney movies because those aren't very difficult. I mean, I don't know. Have you seen the song, uh, song of the South? <laughs> That's true. We, that one has, has a difficult history to it. Um, no, we're have here. You, have, you, have, have you seen the Mighty Ducks? Emilio Estevez is a drunk like his brother Charlie Sheen. <laughs> they, they they casted the wrong. Uh, they casted the wrong Estevez. <laughs> I mean, the wrong uh, Sheen. Sorry. Either way, interchangeable. She greatest knows. thing ever! I say, greatest thing ever to come out of a Yankee game uh, that we went to is listening to the radio broadcast at the stadium, listening to Sterling and Susan Waldman yammer on about who's their favorite sheet. <laughs> <laughs> Just Susan being like, "Mine, my favorite's Martin." Well, we are here today to talk about a difficult film called. Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind. <laughs> yeah, the one that you thought it was at first. <laughs> no, we're, we're here to talk about um, Donnie Darko. It's difficult because it's overrated. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're, it's in the time, same time frame. Um, we're, Didn't Donnie Darko come out like in 04? 2001. Oh, wow, really? Oh, yep. Wow. yep, so we're in the same time frame. But, no, this one came just a year earlier. Uh, we're talking about Requiem for a Dream. Um which is a Darren Aronofsky film um, who subsequently, I mean, this was really kind of his really big movie. Um, but subsequently, he's had quite a few massive hits. Um, pretty well known for like the psychological thrillers that he's been uh, pumping out. Um, you know, big, big ones for him were Black Swan and Mother, which just came out in 2017. But... Um, the wrestler, how dare you? <laughs> the wrestler, yeah. No, I'm sorry, I miss, I missed that one. I forgot that he's super well known for that one too. It's a really good movie. I've never seen it. It's really good. Depressing. I'll have to check it out. You could have put that in difficult films. Is it uh, difficult because you have to look at Mickey Rourke? That and it's <laughs> like just it's it's like ta- a, a taxing film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, th- we're talking about Requiem for a Dream, which was Darren Aronofsky's, like like I said, this is his breakthrough film. Um, 
he did have Pi prior to that, and Pi did really well as well. Uh, well, like people, it was more of like a thing that cult film people picked up on and were like, "Wow, this is a really cool psychological thriller movie." Um, but and that really helped him get to the point of releasing Requiem for a Dream. But really, his big movie was Requiem for a Dream. Um, that's the one that's pretty well known. It's uh, it's it's still very popular to discuss uh, in movie clicks because it is a movie that has especially for people who saw it around the time that it released or maybe a little bit later uh it really was somewhat traumatizing for people um and it's just really well known for being a film that some people just will not go return to it says a really good movie i'm not gonna watch it again um and i get that i i get the like do you have any movies where you would say it's a good movie but i'm not gonna watch it again And I don't mean just because it's difficult or anything, but just in general, um, movies that you you liked, but you're like, eh, I don't need to see that again. I don't know. Start seeing uh, naming some stuff. Well, I have one. Um, I would say Revolutionary Road is a movie that I'm happy to have seen. Um, eventually, I did enjoy it, but I would never watch it again. I thought it was, you know, like it's one of those movies where when I was watching it, I was like, I have this movie. I don't, I don't like this movie. And then I got to the end of the movie, and I was like. That was a pretty good movie as a whole, but I don't want to return to it ever again. Um, I, so that's one. It be, and because it was is very dramatic, um, is very tedious at times, but then it ended up having a really good storyline to it, and it ended on a pretty good note. So that's one that I would say that I would, would not watch again, but I enjoyed. I don't know. I really, I really have to sit and think on that because I mean, both, when it comes to media, we both kind of have two different perspectives. You just want to chew through it all. I like to revisit things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah, we do have different perspectives. So um, I mean, like, like even I can't, like I said, I can't honestly think of a film that I enjoyed that I wouldn't think about eventually revisiting because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. eventually get get the itch to sit down and. Yeah, I mean, of course we know some that you would never revisit just because they were bad, but it's a uniqueness to have a movie that you enjoyed but just not want to come back to. Yeah. But but that's kind of what Requiem for a Dream has done to some people. Um, so that's why I want to do it. Um, and luckily I had the 4K as well, the 4K UHD that I uh, had been meaning to watch. So this was a perfect time to, to do that. And you had never seen Requiem for a Dream before, is that right? No. Okay. Yeah, because you had you had originally thought you had seen it, uh, but you were thinking of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, which is a very different movie, <laughs> <laughs> completely different movie in 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 all respects. Um, but yeah, actually, I had never seen Requiem for a Dream either. I picked it specifically because I knew that it was often considered a difficult movie, and I wanted to find out why. And it just seemed like a perfect time to to go over that. And- and don't lie to our listeners. We did not listen, watch this on 4K UHD. We had Xbox, Microsoft's HD DVD. <laughs> we, we have the, that copy of Requiem for yeah. a Dream. You know what, though? Requiem for a Dream is an interesting movie in that I don't know that you really do need to watch it in a 4K UHD because it's, it, it's shot in a lot of ways and meant to be somewhat... Um, blurry and 
like almost like smeared Vaseline lens caps and stuff like that uh, to the point where you're sort of questioning like, is it worth it for me to like watch it in 4K? You know, is that, is that taking away from some of the intention because I'm seeing things in like absolute pristine detail that I really don't need to be? So it's an interesting movie like that. And there's there's some movies that, that do have that sort of odd juxtaposition between like how gritty the film is supposed to be and then like you're being presented with like absolute like here's every single pixel you'll ever need to see um it is a weird like caveat of now that we're we're continually trying to up the ante of picture quality um certain things just don't translate well to having immaculate picture quality you know even when grindhouse movies released to drive in theaters you know it wasn't astounding quality and it wasn't meant to be it was like a cheap movie that you took your date to and you know turned down the lights and didn't watch half the movie all right so before we get into requiem for a dream in total let's talk about the beer that we have on the show today we'll preface that beer by saying we were pretty excited to try this beer I'm gonna go grab the second can right now. Okay, all right. Give you give you a second, and I'll I'll do the lead in for this beer. Um, we had been excited for this beer because it was um, it's in a line of beers that we've done on the show before. Uh, it's been re- they've been releasing this neon line of beers uh, for quite some time, and the newest one in the the neon series that Amagang Brewing Company has released was gonna be a hazy IPA, and it was gonna be a crossover with thin man brewing which is a brewery out of uh the buffalo area and it was going to cross over with their very very popular minky boodle which is a raspberry sour that they make um probably one of the highest rated sours um that i can think of it's very just very well regarded uh in the sour uh line so this was a cross between the minky boodle from Thin Man and Amagang's Hazy series called Neon Boodles. So, of Which, course, by the way, what a great name. The Minky yeah. Boodle. The Minky Boodle. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it makes sense. It's a crossover. And so Amagang and Thin Man Brewing work together to create this. And it, it is ultimately a tropical hazy IPA with raspberry to get the both sour and IPA flavors into one beer. So... I'll let you go first. What did you think about uh, the Neon Boodles? The Neon Boodles. Sounds so delightful. Boodles. <laughs> um, well, I had uh, big expectations for this beer. Um, one, because we're big Gang fans here. Two, we uh, the offerings we've had from Thin Man, we've liked quite a bit. Uh, based out of Buffalo. Had a couple other stuff. Uh... But yeah, so like I and you know the idea of combining you know this kind of the idea of the minky boodle, you know raspberry uh, sour with an IPA from Omega is an enticing idea. We both love raspberry. We're old men. It's one of our favorite you know fruits. Nice little raspberry. So it was interesting. You know, kind of waited with bated breath to get this one to finally do it. And uh, disappointment is all I have. 
Raspberry and uh, Nipa don't really kind of pair well, at least with this offering from them. Um, to say it's an IPA is kind of... I, I, like, I said, like I was saying to Ryan before we started, it's like probably technically an IPA, but you don't get any IPA in this. You don't really taste any of the four hops in here. They're all buried in the raspberry, which the raspberry does start off at first. Like it does have like a nice tartness to it and it's good and as ryan will say you know in a little bit more detail when he talks about it you get an incredibly like metallic yeasty like belgian yeasty like taste on the back end which when you're drinking like a normal alma gang it's fine dandy and you know goes well with what you know those beers usually offer you know the coriander the orange the spices it does not pair well here and it's not something you'd expect in a Nipa. Um, I commend them for the effort and the idea because it's interesting. It's new. I can't really think of off the top of my head any raspberry IPAs that I've had. Um, but I wish it was... Obviously, I wish it was better, you know, more well executed. It's a fine beer, but I would not go out of my way to get this again. It's in pretty disappointing. You do get a nice raspberry taste to it but it's incredibly prominent. It kind of overwhelms everything and then just kind of bleeds into like a yeasty, tinny can taste at the back end. So that's my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was disappointed as well. When I when I first cracked into this, I was um, excited because I thought that it was going to have some raspberry to it, uh, pair well with like sort of like the white... Um, you know, sort of wit elements that Gang sometimes has and then have the IPA-ness to it as well because uh, we've had a number of the other, almost every single um, neon beers in the series and pretty much every one of them has been a hit, hit for me. <clears throat> um, all of their hazy IPAs have been really good. Um, the experiments with uh, other brewers have been really good. Um, we've covered a lot of them on the show too, and you know, none, all of them have really hit for me. So this one to have this, it was very, very disappointing to see that this one didn't really hit that well. Um, and th to be fair too, I like Minky Boodle a lot um, from Thin Man, and I've had some good beers from Thin Man as well. And like, so the two together should have been a hit, but and for me, whatever is going on in this beer is just not working very well. Um, I think the, ra the the overwhelming amount of raspberry notes to this um, sort of does not complement the hazy IPA elements of at least the hop choosings that they picked here for this. Um, Suffocates it. Yeah, it's just a weird pairing overall where we do we get a, like a very mild amount of hop taste to it, but then I think what's end up what's ending up happening is that the raspberry overpowering is giving it a very weird aftertaste. That doesn't particularly um, go well together, and it's at odds with what it's trying to do. Um, and then the other thing that it gets to is just a very overwhelming yeast flavor at the end that I don't think um, is probably the intended uh, taste for this. Because, you know, it's Amagang um, uses quite a bit of Belgian yeast in their beers, um, so that's kind of a given. And then a hazy IPA uses yeast to make it, you know, very uh, hazy and unfiltered. Um, but it just does not go well together. And I feel like 
the beer is constantly fighting with itself as to what flavor you're really supposed to be getting out of it. Um, so for me, it's really kind of a disappointment. I- I'm not saying that it's not drinkable. It's definitely drinkable, and I, I don't mind it. Uh, it's not terrible where I, I like got to pour this out. But it's definitely a disappointment considering how good the Neon series has been so far and the two brewers that are um, you know, making this beer. I, I really think that they... Uh, they could have had a stronger offering, and I think they need to go back to the recipe a little bit and try to tweak like how much raspberry is in it because I think the raspberry really is the thing that's like going overboard here. The tartness is just like out of control, <laughs> and I think that's like throwing off the balance of the other f- flavors. Um, I think your mileage may vary, though. I don't know. I I mean I just kind of think I mean it's an interesting try. I like to see kind of other brewers try this, but and. Uh, this moment, I think it's kind of something that isn't meant to go together. Right. I, and I, like, the, I don't think the pairing. Like you were saying, too, well. the, the idea of tropical raspberry is not really a thing. Like when it's you not think tropical. About, right. You it's think not about tropical, tro- fruit. tropical fruits, raspberry doesn't really come to mind. It's, it's forest. It's, like, you know, <laughs> northern forest. It's, it's like, the, you know. the Forager's IPA. Forager high, Raspberry IPA. It's like, like it's, we, uh, we combine mushrooms and raspberry. Like, so, like, 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 raspberry would work well with, like, a pilsner or a lager or cold. And as it has, or a raspberry wheat or something like yeah. that, you know. But, I mean, so again, like, I'd be interested to see, like, if somebody else can maybe make it work. But I do think... It is kind of like a flawed concept. Because, again, like, I love blackberries. And I love IPAs. Would a blackberry IPA probably work that well? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Because, the, you know, the pairings on, like, what they have to offer, like, you know, flavor-wise is so... In, in such a juxtaposition of, like, what they are. But it is um, interesting, too, you know, like, if... You think about, like, raspberry and lemon. Raspberry and lemon goes really well together. And sometimes certain hops can have like more of a lemony zest to them so i'm just wondering if the pairings of the hops that were picked for this one were just not as ideal as some of the other ones that they had or maybe maybe there's just too many in here that are really cluttering up the the taste well, like, they do ha- they do have four hops citra mosaic amarillo right so so maybe like just sticking to like a, a citra or something would have been maybe a little bit e- easier to balance than trying to combine all those hops and then you know you kind of lose the flavor profile a little bit so i would be interested let's say they have the gall on their like rating scale of like haze hop aroma and bitterness the bitterness is like at 40 percent. there's no bitterness really there Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean the haze level that's certainly accurate because there's so much yeast in it that i wouldn't doubt the haze level and i actually poured it out and it does have a nice unfiltered hazy quality to it and it does have a pink tinge to it from the raspberries not as pink as i was expecting though because if you've ever poured out the minky boodle super pink this one not so much i was expecting it to be a little bit like more of a reddish hue than it has well be still my fucking beating heart thin man uh apparently they have three different restaurant you know brew pubs that we're going to have to go to, but on special today is pineapple teriyaki wings mm. and a shrimp quesadilla. I'm not a fan of the sweetness, though. 
They have an appetizer of bacon nubs, which is smoky and crisp fried pork mm. tossed in a burble maple, maple glaze and honey sriracha. That sounds good. It sounds delightful. Check out Thin Man Brewing. It's uh, it's in Buffalo. I think they have. It, it, are all those three of those somewhere like around the Buffalo vicinity? Oh, looks at they just have yeah. like the. It just says like the like on the street that they're on. So I imagine they're mm. all in Buffalo. Yeah, somewhere around Buffalo. You know, Thin Man Brewing is really centered around Buffalo. And then Ama Gang is in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, stop there. Stop at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Stop at Cooperstown Brewing and Distilling as well. You know, we we need to do an episode from the Hall of Fame. I know, just uh, on location. It's the happiest place in all of America. It would be fun to like kind of go to a brewery and just do an on location. I don't know how well it would work out, but it would be, would be fun. With our shit set up, yeah. We've also you had be, uh You should be, you should be telling people we're like, "Hey, um pay for like, you know, the uh whatever the fuck it's called. Uh, donate so that we can get the soundboard and stuff." Yeah, yeah. We want to get saying, a, like we want to get a soundboard so we can do call-ins. Well, I was going to say, don't be saying like for beer. We can afford the beer. We need the tech. <laughs> That's what we need. But not, yeah, we have no. a low tech setup. No. All right. Ooh, tr- truffle fries, hand cut with truffle oil, parmesan, and parsley. That mm. just sounds amazing. All right, let's move Ooh, on what, to what, what's a buffalo wombat? <laughs> oh my god, you're just gonna go through the menu. <laughs> well, it says buffalo wombat hoagie, spicy fried trial by wombat, battered cauliflower bites, stuffed into a hoagie roll. Hot sauce, blue cheese dressing, lettuce, and tomato. You know what? That that's something we should uh, throw to the audience. What do you call like a nice hot sandwich? Is it a hoagie? Is it a grinder? Submarine? What do you call it? Opening call the phone a, lines now. If you call it a hoagie, you're fucking idiot. Grinder's yeah, the only exception. Don't call. It, yeah, it's a grinder, but grinder. I want to know how that came about. I want to know the etymology of that because. Uh, Probably something to do with the meat grinder, I'm going to guess. I know, but why hot? It's the only way to make it uh, palatable was to take all the, the shavings from the meat grinder and stick it in a hot sub, is my guess. All right, pondering after pondering the etymologies of grinder, let's move on to Requiem for a Dream. Starring Jim Carrey. <laughs> yes. No, actually, you were uh, a little bit offended because you were looking at the cast for this movie, and it has Jared Leto, and it has Damon Wayans, and right there you were you were like ready to wow. write this off, right? I was. First off, you can't even get the right fucking Wayans, bro. Sorry, Marlon Wayans. Sorry. <laughs> wow. You just Damon. I was uh, hoping it was Damon actually. Can't even get it right. You fucked that up. I was hoping it was Damon. Or Keenan. Sean Waynes? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's Steve Harvey. <clears throat> but no. No, I wasn't upset with the casting. I mean, well, Jared Leto, because Jared Leto's a fucking idiot, but. Um... That was what stuck out to you first. No, but um, so so Requiem for a Dream, um, it follows four characters really. It fo- follows uh, Jared Leto's character Harry, 
and um, his trials uh, as a drug dealer and also a user, uh, along with his partner, Tyrone, who is played by Marlon Wayans. Thank you. Got it right. Um, and then it fo- also follows um, Harry's girlfriend, Marion, who is also a user and is also kind of swept up in this whole drug dealing, but she's kind of like on the sidelines. So she's, you know, she's, she's with Harry, uh, but she's not really into the drug dealing business, but they're all kind of together trying to, um, make their way through, like figuring out how to make this work to get enough money to kind of get out of the business. And then there's Harry's mother, Sarah, who (laughs) gets a random call from uh like a telemarketing scam that says she's going to be on tv and to get ready for being on tv she's going to get some information in the mail and she makes it her um you know her her uh goal to lose enough weight to get into this old dress that she has that means a lot to her so that she can be on tv and look fabulous and and kind of look like her old self and so the film really follows those four people throughout their trials and tribulations. And it kind of takes place over the course of a year, which is segmented uh, throughout the film by um, the like a very strong uh, sound effect of like like something falling, like bars falling as the uh, title card gives you the different seasons. So. That's ultimately the gist of Requiem for a Dream. Um, as it follows these characters, um, things kind of start out like really, you know, kind of kind of peachy. Like, that's the dream part of it. The dream is that we're going to succeed. We're going to meet our goals. We're going to do this thing that we wanted to do for so long. And, and uh, everything's going to be good, right? So, like... No. <laughs> no that's and i guess if you look at the title like you can pretty much immediately see that the film is not going to be like the fun happy-go-lucky movie that it's originally is made out to be at the beginning of the movie you know and and i i would say that the mo- the beginning of the movie is obviously not um making light of drug use but it's also not super serious like Darren, I think I feel like Darren Aronofsky structures it in a way that makes the beginning of the movie seem like everything's gonna be okay. Like you know, we have a plan. We're gonna get you know, we're gonna sell a whole bunch of drugs, and then everything's gonna be okay. We're gonna make a lot of money. I I, I mean I mean it's like wistful. Yep. From the perspective of these people, mm-hmm. but I think if as you know, viewers and you know being voyeurs on this journey it's not like oh yeah they're gonna sell enough ancient they're gonna be okay yeah i mean i think if i think uh i like the beginning of the movie you know though it kind of has like a more light-hearted tone to it where like the music's a little bit more light-hearted the uh the, the different um cuts because this movie has like a lot of cuts um it's almost structured like a music video at times um those elements kind of give it almost like a cartoony nature at times. Like uh, all of the cuts of them doing drugs, doing heroin, and then it cuts away to like various different um, symbolic imagery of like, you know, dropping the drugs onto a tray and um, 
melting it down and stuff like that. It kind of all gives it sort of like a cartoony element to it, especially because the sound effects used. Um, the sound design is really important to this movie. And the sound effects when they are doing drugs is really like cartoonish. Um, the one thing that I really think is funny is when Sarah um, Ellen Burstyn, she's uh, popping pills because she gets hooked on pills to try to lose weight. She goes to a doctor who, who basically says, yeah, we can lose 20 pounds in 50 days. No problem here. Let me, let me give you these pills. And he just basically gives her a combination of like speed uh, and then downers. <laughs> so speed for when you're awake. Um, and then it, here's a downer for when you got to go to sleep. You're all, you're good to go. So like three pills throughout the day. Four. And no, wait, no, Hold on. I think it's five actually morning, afternoon, evening, dinner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he gives her like three different types of pills. Cause there's one that's like going to be your upper, the one that's going to really get her moving throughout the day, getting, you know, basically having, keeping her on her feet and, you know, really wasting away one to keep her appetite suppressed. And then one to then ultimately put her to bed at night because it basically is like a ambient, you know, because like after having being on all day on uppers, you got to come down. So he gives her the, the ambient to like put her out in like 20 minutes. But, um, you know, when she's taking her pills, you know, you hear like this little, like, you know, like cartoony pops when she's popping them in her mouth. Um, it's like, oh, it looks so fun to just be popping these pills all the time. Not only that, but she's constantly watching this self-help video uh, from Tappy Tippins, played by one of our favorites, Christopher McDonald, who's basically a self-help guru. He's kind of like, um, he's kind of like Patrick Swayze from um, Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko. I yeah, it's say. very, very <laughs> reminiscent of that as well. And actually, Donnie Darko was in 2001, but but a similar idea of using... Well, I was going to say the same thing, like Jared Leto in this is... As you said, I said he's just, you know, ripping Gyllenhaal, but, you know, obviously, you know, Jake and Donnie Darko is, you know, after this, but still, you know, it comes across. But, yeah, no, Christopher Christopher McDonald is kind of a poor man's Patrick Swayze, even though I think he is better than Patrick Swayze, you know, and he just, you know, loses bastard every time he's on the screen. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think he does a really good job just in the, the moments that we get from him uh, that we see on the videos because – Tappy Tibbins is meant to be like the showcase of like, here's how you can do everything that you ever wanted to do because Requiem for a Dream when it comes boils down to it is not so much about, I mean, it's a, a lot about drug use and abuse, but it's a lot about also about how, um, tr- you know, you're the goal of trying to ultimately change your life um, can sometimes lead you down a place that you you never expected that ultimately <clears throat> is a lot further away than where you thought you were going to get. Um, because, you know, Sarah's character specifically, um, she's really, her goal is really just to lose weight, right? And to get into that red dress because she's misled into thinking she's going to be on TV. And she's not, she's not a, a drug user. She's, she doesn't have any experience using drugs and she goes to a doctor who she thinks is reputable and she gets prescribed all these drugs um, that are ultimately addictive and she doesn't even realize that she's going down this rabbit hole because she's, she's, uh, attempting to, um, get a, get to a dream that is really like unrealistic to lose all this weight for no reason, you know, just to, to fit into an old dress. And the film really tackles the idea of, of what happens when you have these dreams that are 
sometimes either unattainable or, you know, not manageable and how you can slip into things like drug abuse because of that. Um, I'll agree and disagree with some of that. I think, I don't think it's the film's necessarily about drug use. It's more the heroin used from three of our, of our four protagonists is more of a overview of addiction itself. Because again, when most people think addicts, they think, you know, strung out junkies, you know, and they look at them and say like, Oh, what fucking horrible choices you've made in your Mm -hmm. life. Why would you ever do such a thing? Mm -hmm. You know? And we get to see that through Ty and Harry and through uh, Marion. Um, but we get Sarah, Harry's mother to be the kind of, juxtaposition to that to which her the addiction that she suffers from one is not really of her own fault it is in a sense that like she has like an as you were talking about unrealistic desires and an unrealistic dream to like try to lose weight in a certain amount of time and i I don't know if the film because again now we're 20 years out from this you know plus 20 years out from this film but looking at it in today's you know world of with the the opioid crisis with a lot of people becoming addicted to opioids because of terrible mismanagement and prescriptions from doctors pharmacists etc her addiction is really relatable and how like just flip it and you know easy it was for her you know to become addicted because of misguided, you know, prescription and the things that she faces. So, and yeah, I think you really get to see that when, you know, you get to see her go to the doctor saying she wants to lose weight and you're like, you're not really that overweight. And she's like, well, you know, I want, you know, I could lose 50 pounds. And the doctor's just like, yeah, here, here you go. Here's a fucking script. Mm-hmm. He comes in for like yeah. literally a minute. And he's not, doesn't, Never looks at her or anything. He's always just looking down at the clipboard like, yeah, we got something for you. Very flippant. Very, you know, nonchalant. And the struggles that she goes through, I think, you know, it's not, I don't, I mean, I mean, I think that works well to also address like that kind of addiction. But I think also too, her addiction is, didn't start from drug use. It started from, you know unrealistic expectations and the addiction like of trying to like I'm gonna lose weight and you know struggling with that and how addiction exists in millions of different forms for for people you know for some people it's heroin for some people it's alcohol for some people it's you know marijuana etc we all have our vices things that keep us you know kind of clouded clouded in mind mm-hmm. and i think that the like the film gives us a an interest I, like i think everybody ha- like all the characters are really well characterized and they all have a, a really good elements to them uh, especially you know like with harry like you were saying how do people get into this situation well the sh- film shows you how there's really nowhere else for them to go what what else are they doing so they turn to what they can to to make it work but i think like you said the one that is relatable, the most relatable for general people is Sarah because she 
falls into this pattern and there's a couple things in her life that gets her to this place the one is obviously watching tappy tibbins who says he has a perfect life because this is what he did he cut out some sugars he stopped eating you know he stopped eating cereal so he has a perfect life now he stopped eating raw meat yep and raw meat because yeah apparently he was blasting through raw meat like crazy he was eating it right off the t-bone uh raw he and ran out and <laughs> took down a cow himself. You know you what? Know, I can see Christopher McDonald doing that. The <laughs> only thing I can, is is that I can see him doing that with the mustache. But in this movie, he doesn't have the mustache, so that's why. That's why he's no longer a meat addict. But which fun? Say which fun fact to tie it all back to Thin Man and Buffalo. Uh, Christopher McDonald. Big Buffalo Bills fan. I think you get that in every single time we cover, which is not often, but we've had two <laughs> movies now with Christopher McDonald, and I think you've gotten that in both times. So, Because you know what? Somebody has to say it. Ryan Hyde. Somebody now. must know. <laughs> Christopher McDonald's a big Buffalo fan. You know we what? Got hi- we, got hi- we, got, we got him, like Summer Sanders and like Brian <laughs> Dunkelberg from like I'm curious if one. Jennifer Connelly is too, because she has roots in the Catskills. But that's not like Bills. No, she's I know. From, I'm just fucking, saying. She's you know, from fucking Cairo. For God's she's sakes. still she's still from the surrounding area. I'm curious if she's a Buffalo Bills fan too. Probably not. Her eyebrows probably say Jets. <laughs> wow. She just gives you a look and says, "No, I'm with the Jets." No, but uh, I think, like I was saying, the the one that we can relate to most is Sarah. And she gives Alan Burstyn gives a really great speech to Harry when Harry goes back to visit her after she's gotten on pills, and it's a actually a really good moment because Jared Leto, you know, has a has that accent in this movie, and he's like, "Ma, what the, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? You running around here?" And uh, it's just a great moment overall as they're trading barbs, and he's you know basically catching on to the fact that she's on speed. But Ellen Burstyn gives that really good speech about how she really has nothing left. Like she's like, she doesn't have anything to look forward to. Her kids moved out. Husband's dead. She doesn't have anybody to care for. She's there in an apartment alone. Literally every single day. Every single day is exactly the same. And this thing out of the blue, this TV show that she's going to potentially be on, which is a scam. Is, well, do we know it's a scam? And we don't know it's a scam, but it's just a really random thing, and it, it, it basically takes over her life. We don't really, yeah, we don't really I don't know th- that I don't it's, think a it's a scam. I, I don't think it's a scam because I mean, what, what a weird fucking scam that. Hey, you're gonna get the prices right. It's Tappy Tibbins. Woo! Tappy Tibbins Woo! is uh, PR is contacting people and just making them think they're gonna be on Tappy Tibbins show. What they, what they never no. said it was Tappy no, Tibbins. No, I know. I'm just, I'm just kidding. The only yeah, reason we, we, the only reason you would think that is because you we see the infomercial on. 24-7, like, it's Ron Popoli's set it and forget it. <laughs> yeah, we really, we don't know that it's a scam, um, I guess, but but overall, like, over time, as we've seen, and, you know, it's, like, almost a year throughout Requiem for a Dream, she doesn't really get anything else from the show, and it, but but the her speech is, like, saying, you know what, if I'm, what's the harm in me being obsessed with this TV show and, and having an obsession, because it, it gets me up in the morning, it gets me feeling like I have something to work towards. And that I think is really a prominent thing about Requiem for a Dream that that nor, like regular people can relate to that at a certain point you're going to reach a time in your life where there it you might not have a like you might not feel like you have a purpose. You're just 
doing stuff to do stuff and going on and, you know, <laughs> it's depressing, but you may not really have a, something that keeps you going and you have to find that thing that keeps you going. And for her, it's fitting into this red dress that ultimately becomes an obsession that leads her into drug use, uh, unknow really unknowingly. And I think that's hers is one of the more depressing storylines in Requiem for a Dream because um, it ultimately leads her to really no help whatsoever. And the film kind of goes into the fact that like there's really not much help for people who are um, drug abusers because ultimately people just really look at you like you're crazy. There's a really great scene when she first goes into the hospital and the one guy in the emergency department just like shines a light in both of her eyes and like, nope, not an emergency. Send her on down to psych. Just, no. Just well, literally I mean, I, looking at she's going to have a seizure or not. I, th I, think, I, think, I think literally, yes, it's that, but also too, I think it, it, it's, you know, it, it's a metaphor for obsession itself. So you mm -hmm. can, you can, like her drug abuse or misuse, I should say, you know, is it's not a fault of her own, and it's actually happening in the story. And it's again relating, like how people were kind of thinking of like opioid addiction in two thousand. It's ten years old; can't remember. But now, with it being the issue that it is, and knowing people who have gone through this, family members, etc., you know, it hits differently. But I think. Here also, too, I think you could use the addiction that she suffers through, the pills that she gets, you can use that as like a metaphor, like for, as you said, like her obsession to fit into the red dress and have those pills kind of act as a, you know, metaphorically for her obsession, her addiction. Um, but you're right, we do get to see kind of the callousness of how people kind of think and treat people with substance abuse problems because you, you get to see you know jared leto's arm basically fucking turning venom and the doctor instead of trying to help him's like i've got to send him to prison because uh he he's got heroin on him yeah you notice that, uh, that, 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 that that was literally right up on the first thing like yeah you know what i could help this guy whose fucking arms you know getting gangrene and rotten but uh I gotta make sure you know the south carolina police make sure he gets uh sent to fucking county so he can crack some you know, rocks in the hot rocks sun. The, yeah, in the hot, on the highway. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that was that's a a great moment because he just walks in. You know, obviously he knows oh, this is a drug addict. Look at his arm. Yeah, he's fucking got a symbiote on him, and uh, his arm's literally like falling off. Um, let me just take up all this morphine, and and I'll, I'll be right back. Let me go get the police. And yeah, you know, and also, did you notice too that that's. Um, Dylan Baker, who's also in Trick or Treat, that you done? Yes, That's yes, it, yeah. And Spider Sam Raimi Spider Man, Mister Wilson. Yeah, yep. I had to look. I had well, I had to look through his like filmography, but like, like he looks so fucking familiar. Yeah, he gets like a really, really small part in there, just playing the doctor. But uh, he's actually credited as Southern Doctor. <laughs> I know, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> poor guy. But uh, yeah, it's an early role mm -hmm. for him. So, um, yeah, but it's it's a crazy scene, and you know, like. That's that's really where we haven't really talked about Harry and his friends, um, but Harry and uh, Tyrone and Marion they kind of have a different trajectory. They have like the general addict trajectory of you know 
their their users, their heroin users, um, they ultimately mean to do well and they're trying to get out of this lifestyle. The goal is to sell enough heroin to get out of the lifestyle, to make enough money where they can go do something else and not have to worry about it. But of course, we as viewers kind of know that that's not going to be the case. They don't really see themselves as addicts and users. And actually, Marion, you know, Jennifer Connelly's character, even later on in the film when she's doing, you know, basically prostitution for drugs, she still says that she's not really, you know, like she's not a user. She's just like a casual, like I just like to, you know, I just like to have heroin sometimes. Um, Keith David says, yeah, sure you do. Yeah, well, Keith, yeah, Keith <laughs> David is like, uh, I just pulled out my, my big Tim for you. And so I didn't pull it out just to get some air. I, you know what? <laughs> Keith David, he really blew me away in this part because I, I, I this is not the Keith David I know. He's not a, you know, he's not a, a drug dealer with a passion for pussy. He's, he, you know, he's a, he's the guy from the thing that, or from they live. And he's, he's a better man than that. Or Saint Row three. <laughs> he was oh no I lied Saints he's, wait no yeah he's in Saints Row he's got a great voice so it doesn't surprise me that he does voiceover work for that stuff a global force for good he reprised his role as Spawn in the Mortal Kombat game when oh. they had him I didn't and, know he was Spawn in that well he played Spawn oh yeah yep but um but more importantly, uh, he was Admiral David Anderson in Mass Effect. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That does ring a bell. Yeah. That, they, they... I think I, I, say, I think I think in Saints Row 3, he had DLC where they added Roddy Piper and they reenacted as like characters you could call for help. And they reenacted They Live. And after... He gets done fighting Roddy. He's like, they're like, where did he, where did he go? And he goes, Roddy goes wherever he needs to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even for his small role in his, uh, Keith, he, like he, Keith David is actually a really important part of this movie because it, like, there's a there's a moment where Requiem for a Dream kind of like spirals down into the ultimate uh, dark and depressing <laughs> movie that it is where. You sense that, okay, we've kind of, like, no, I'm not saying, like, it's uh, something, like, out of the director's hands, it was intentional, but we've spiraled out of control, like, with the characters, that there's a, a point of no return, and that point of no return happens when, you know, like, Tyrone is picked up from the the police, where there's a really um, kind of out of nowhere scene where he's just, like, with his drug dealer, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody shoots him in the face, <laughs> He's running away and gets caught did, by the cops. Didn't you like the fact that the guy that's like the boss? What a progressive film! Yeah, uh, that's like the boss and... is deaf. He's got to, you know, do sign language. Yeah, that's like... pretty cool. I thought it, was, <laughs> it definitely was progressive. But yeah, that 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 moment is kind of where we start spiraling out of control because that's where everything goes wrong for Tyrone. They lose all their money. They don't have a dealer anymore, and there's no one to facilitate their use either. So that's when Jennifer Connelly's character, Marion, kind of, you know, goes from being like the lovable uh, girlfriend of Harry to someone who's constantly pestering him. Like, did you get the stuff? Did you get the stuff? 
and it causes them to have to do more and more risky things and and we we start to see like that spiral of like we've lost control and that, and at a certain point they start to do anything that they can to get back into the you know into their dream um it's just a pretty you know it's a pretty thrilling series of events that occur um which leads us up to the conclusion where we are seeing all four of these characters in their their own personal hells of you know first harry is getting his arm cut off amputated because it's just so bad the infection is so bad that he he actually can't keep his arm you have tyrone you know working himself to death in like a prison camp um while trying to go through detox you have marion who's like we said uh has kind of like resulted to in to prostitution to what do you what do you, what do you mean she's through hell she's through heaven ass to ass yeah absolutely ass to ass of course and you know and you know what god bless this film because they made sure to show that they lubed up that dildo that it, that's only right i mean right i mean if you're gonna have you know a business work group that is you know chanting and betting uh, well, I don't know why they're like sitting there waving money around, like, like, like who, like is it tug of war? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a... like, like clench your asshole. See who's gonna, you know. <laughs> this is why women don't like men, <laughs> because because it's, it's the equivalent of a fucking Mexican cockfight in there, <laughs> just chanting on two women. <laughs> To have an ass-to-ass tug-of-war with a lubed-up gigantic dildo. Double, double-headed, you know. Yeah. Double. <laughs> and, and to be fair, too, we should say we watched the quote-unquote director's cut, which is really the theatrical cut. But um, apparently this movie also got released with an R-rated, like, cut version, which doesn't have, like, the dildo stuff. And uh, that got released to, like, Blockbuster on home video, where Blockbuster was like, we can't be... You know, we we well, sure know, we have I a know. back room, but we can't be. Uh, I know I got it like an NC seventeen rating, which I don't. I think by today's terms, it's it'd be tame. I think I think even like the like the like the two sex scenes that you get to see are really tame, for, especially for today. Um, it might it might have been the ass to ass that put over the. <laughs> I think Over it's um yeah it's like the tame I think it's tame but taboo is what what it comes down to the tabooness of it of you know like actually having you know anal sex on on a on a movie because if you think about it like sure it's not it's not anal sex as if it's a dildo <laughs> like the I guess yeah like from today's standards I think that would I think that would fly um but I think like the tabooness of it and also just the the overall context of it of it being like sort of a a woman who's you know she's yeah she I guess she is making the choice to do it but it's also not really a choice um the context itself is really you know what kind of makes it a lot more intense and then not only that but it's you know it's kind of all of these four things happening at the same time which is just like a clusterfuck of bad things occurring all at once which I think adds to the the intenseness of that ending, um, 
that I think really makes what the, this movie considered to be a difficult film. And it's a difficult film because it ultimately has no real good outcome to it. And I think at a certain point as you're watching the Requiem for a Dream and you get to that spiral, you know, as the viewer, there's no good outcome that's going to happen from this. Like these characters are not bound to make it out of this um, situation okay. There's going to be, you know, it's so there's like that ultimate doom and gloom that's kind of like cast that's a pall that's cast over requiem for a dream uh probably from the last like from like the last half of the movie really the second maybe from the second and third act on you just have that pall of just like i know that bad things are going to happen so you i think it's a context in 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 general of knowing that um what do you think is the most effective story from the four of these characters. Hmm. Um, well, I think, uh, for the most part, I think it'd be more two characters because I think Sarah, Harry's mother is one side of the coin. And I think a lot of what happens between Harry, Marion and Tyrone are incredibly tied together. So it's, two separate sides mm-hmm. um i think they're both really effective because again you get from mary and tyrone and harry you know uh kind of a look at you know these are junkies this is what their life's like and then like how whether or not you decide to kind of sympathize with their plight is up to you depending on how you know you view addiction and then seeing the kind of counterpoint through what you know sarah goes through is really intriguing to have that you know because it kind of ties it back to like well i you know to a lot of people who view you know addiction as usually you know the uh person who's addicted's fault and then kind of seeing that counterpoint through Sarah. Um, I think they both work really well in what they're trying to do. Yeah. I didn't, really, I, I, I didn't really have like a favor overall on like, you know, which uh, narrative I like the best. I think they worked. Yeah. I, well I would, in concert. I would agree with that. I think like every one of them, ha- like this is a, a film that's, that's uh you know, it has four characters four major characters and all four of them are characterized in a really, great way where it doesn't really require the audience to get like an in-depth backstory about them it doesn't really give us any um you know like like specific characterization it's all shown through the the things that they do throughout the movie and that comes out really well into the development of the characters and how we feel about them because the film really gives us a great relationship between harry and marion obviously they're there are some issues within that, you know, because they're both drug addicts and and uh, that can cause some some concern. But for overall, they have a really good relationship and it shows how it falls apart. And then they have, you know, the relationship between Harry and Tyrone, who are both working really well together. They're good partners. And ultimately, because Harry has, you know, that infection in his arm from shooting up, you know, that falls apart as well. And, and Tyrone goes to jail because of it. Um, and then you have Sarah who 
you know, has a interesting relationship with her son and, you know, ha- really has her own development overall as this film shows us what she wants and her, her needs and her dreams. You have that fall apart as well. And I think it really it does a really good job of showing them at a good point in their lives and then showing how that dissolves over time because of the drug use. So I think you're right. I mean, I think every one of them has done really well. Um, I was really interested in um, Sarah and then I think also Marion because Marion kind of has the least amount of development as a character. She's kind of she's always kind of um, the side piece to Harry. Like it's always Harry and Marion. Um, but later on in the movie, it kind of captures how she feels about things. Um, and there's that really harrowing scene where she knows that she has to go and sleep with this guy because she needs money for their last like heroin score, um, which is, you know, really which done is apparently well. her, Which is apparently her psychiatrist. Oh, is that what it's meant to be, really? That's uh, Arnold's apparently his psychi- her psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah I mean it kind which, of which, kind which, of goes into that a little bit. I don't know that it was super clear. I I never heard it, but in, on the Wikipedia it's a psychiatrist, which I was kind of blown. I away mean, he kind of talks about that in certain ways too, right? Like because he kind of like says like, oh, you know, what have you been up to? He kind of goes into like a psychiatry sort of thing. But yeah, that's because yeah, the perfect time to have psych- a psychiatrist meeting is at a fucking steakhouse while you're sitting there ravenously did eating you, do you like that that's, that's faster than i normally eat steak and no, i normally just, eat steak <laughs> no that guy's like not even enjoying what he's eating he's just fucking plowing right through it like sitting there like like you know double uncle rico speed well doesn't that get you in the mood though no isn't that like no it's 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 obscene it's like stop <laughs> jennifer Connolly after she has sex and has that you know that uh, cheating moment for the money doing it for for the money she she comes out runs out and there's like uh they this film kind of employs like the um chest cam the one that shows it like from the bottom view of your face which uh has like i think i don't i don't know if it's the first one to do it but it aronofsky is really one of the the primary people to do that sort of like you know movement in camera and uh, then she she comes out after that and vomits, and I think it's probably just because she's still disgusted from the steak feast that yeah, uh, Arnold. It's not, yeah, it's not the sex; it's just him yeah. fucking sitting there, pounding away at steak and not enjoying it. There's no, you know, he's not he's not putting condiments on it or anything. He's just sitting gnawing away. He might as well be bottle of Perrier and. <laughs> He might as well be a caveman just gnawing on a bone. But that is that is a well you know well shot you know the you know watching her after you know that torrid affair and having that shake kind of shaky cam you know voyeuristic view of her going out and watching you know her you can tell by the way the camera work is and obviously Jennifer Connelly's acting like how nauseous she is and then watching like what actually unfolds you know it's really well done what do you think about the stylism of Requiem for a Dream I like it a lot I think the editing is the editing and the cinematography overall is what makes the film special I I, I think 
especially for because again, the first like forty five minutes of this film are just repetition, watching like you know the repetition of these people, and seeing their habits play out, and then seeing them play out in the dramatized way of like how like you know we get the when they you know shoot up heroin, watching like you know them the bubbles, the cooking, you know the needle, and you know it's all. That aesthetic is what makes this film, this film. I really like it a lot. I think this is an incredibly well shot film. And if anything, it's an incredibly well edited film with a snappiness, a direction, and an idea on how to move it forward in a way that, like, as even somebody who likes film, like, that, like, goddamn, like, to have that, like, kind of, like, this is what we need to do, like, this repetition and, like, showing that, like, you know, these, all these, like, kind of, like, crash cuts of, like, this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. I think it works really well. The aesthetic, I think, to me, is probably one of the most enjoyable things about this film. Because I think without it, I mean, I don't, I don't think it wouldn't be an enjoyable film, but I think the aesthetic is like 60% of uh, <clears throat> why you would come and watch this film. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the stylism really is what makes Requiem for a Dream. Like, if you, this could be any other movie about drug use, but because of the stylization, it really gets you into the, the film. It uses a lot of different techniques, sound design, um, the the personal POVs a lot of the times it has a very uh, specific way of shooting conversations too that are really like up close and personal. Um, a lot of, a lot of the uh, cinematography too is really great. Like the spiral out, uh, you know, metaphorically symbolically showing the spiral out of control that will soon happen that uh, occurs a couple times throughout the movie. I think it all works really well, uh, you know, as a metaphor, as you watch it, um, of course, you know, you're you're seeing the, the film's title, Requiem for a Dream. You know that it's not going to end well. Uh, so it's kind of in the title that things are not going to go well. It's not going to be a happy film at the end of the movie. But I still think that once you get boiled down to it, it is a really depressing movie. Um, it really does make you think about how lives can be turned upside down simply because of drug use um, and addiction and your focus on a dream that may not be a reality um and i i do understand why people find this especially the ending to be a difficult movie to watch um because it like we've watched some movies in the difficult films like hereditary which is when it boils down to it not extremely realistic and that's going to happen in real life Uh, obviously you know certain parts of it could but once you get down to the end of the movie, it's really about a demon. That's not really realistic to real life. Requiem for a Dream is, you know, anybody can fall into drug use. And as we've seen, even this was a kind of a prescient movie because in 2000, that was not during the time of the opioid crisis. Um, and it kind of comments on that without knowing that that's to come. Um, so this really is a very realistic portrayal of, you know, what could happen with drug use. And I think that's what makes it all the more difficult. But would you so would you characterize it as a difficult film? Because uh, as we've seen so far, you have not really found the two that we found to be difficult films. What would you say? 
Um, from my personal experience, yes, this would be one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because of, uh, like I said, knowing people who have gone through drug drug addiction and family, having family members who have suffered drug addiction, and sometimes unknowingly going through these things, you know, until recently where it's like oh you know this is what's been going on so yeah this definitely is i mean i would still watch it again because i think it's that well of a made film but it's i would definitely say the content of this film and the ideas and the overall story definitely relates more and is more much more grounded into where yet it would be uh, I would say it's difficult to watch. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody will get a little bit of a different thing out of it too. You know, especially like men and women, we're going to see it differently. Uh, the prostitution element is going to be a little bit different for women than it is for men. <coughs> the, um, the element of, you know, almost like cuckolding is going to be different for certain people. So I think like... <laughs> you're just going to be happy to see Jennifer Connelly and God. Yeah, right. At the, at the end, I think I think it Keith like da- Keith David's a big goth fan. Yeah, it just it really, has... really, really into suicide girls. <laughs> it has a lot of different elements to it that will make you depressed or, um, you know, upset. <laughs> I think like it, it can do it in a multitude of ways, and really depends on which storyline you kind of resonate with most. But um, happy. Yeah, right. Yeah, I resonate with Tappy. I gave I I also gave up red meat. You know what? That's why Arnold is so um so uh miserable, but also <laughs> I do like how they picked him as Arnold as well and just to be like the most like off-putting person for her to to have to deal with. Especially like when he's uh, when she's in his room and he's like laying there you know, and you can only see like he's definitely naked, but you can only see the top half, and he's just looking so, so. Uh... I like I like the fact that like when they're about to have sex, she he she goes, "Can you turn the lights off?" And he's like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> like he like totally you know totally oblivious. Like, what do you mean? Uh, I want to see you fucking me. Uh, you know, fucking me for God's sakes. Yeah. Uh, all right, you're you're gonna insist the lights are off. Fine, whatever. Yeah, he's just he's just oh, a. Unappealing specimen. Which I mean, again, him. If it is true, again, like I don't remember seeing any. I paid attention while watching this film. If he really is her psychiatrist, it is like you know that's disturbing, obviously, and the fact that they've had like a relationship for however long. But mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, we don't even still like even if they're not like they don't really ever hint at what his relationship is to. Her originally I thought like that was her dad or some shit because mm-hmm. they say they br- briefly bring up how she's like estranged, excuse me, from her family, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, all around a disturbing element to the movie. All right, so we have to rate Requiem for a Dream. What would you give it on a scale of ten two-headed dildos? Wow, you read my mind. Um, 
I'll probably give it an eight and a half. Probably give it an eight and a half. Uh, could be a nine. But right now, it's I'm feeling like it's on par with funny games. Uh, maybe even a little better. Um, I like this movie a lot. I think it's really well done. I think it's uh, the concept is really well done as well. It's really, you know, down, dirty, and gritty, and grounded, and it stays grounded the entire time. I think the acting throughout the film is really good. Uh, one of the few times where I'd say Jared Leto isn't a piece of shit, you know, piece <laughs> of shit, wannabe uh, Joaquin Phoenix. With <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know, his thespianness, but, you know, it's really well done. Jennifer Connelly is great, too. Obviously, Christopher McDonald's fucking great as Tappy in those infomercial bits. Uh, <clears throat> I think as good and grounded as the idea is, I think a lot, and Marlon Wayans is really good as Tyrone too. I think a lot of the mileage you'll get out of this film is, is within its editing and cinematography. I think that has a lot of the appeal of it. It's such a well shot, well edited, well paced film. It's um, incredibly gritty incredibly st- stuck to on principle of what it's trying to show. <clears throat> you can glean a lot of, from it depending on your life experiences. And I think, again, today, especially today, you know, with the subtext of addiction, you know, being 20 years out from this film and, you know, people kind of seeing what y- the modern-day op- opioid crisis has kind of given us, um, it definitely can leave if you're somebody who's, you know, either suffered through it, you know, that, or you know people who have, you can totally, you know, gleam a lot from this film. And I think so far out of all the films we've done, it's probably the most quote-unquote difficult to watch because it is, at least for me, the you know, more impactful than, say, Hereditary or Funny Games. But I think it's really good. Um, I don't think it's Aronofsky's best film. Probably The Wrestler still is, but it's a very, this is a very good film. Really good. Um, and I think... I, I think even if you're not like a film buff who likes, you know, kind of artsy-fartsy films, you can kind of enjoy this because it's such a kind of well-paced, well-structured film with a really good eye. Yeah, I would, I would probably give this a 9 out of 10. I think it's a really good movie. Um, I think Aronofsky does a really good job with the uh, direction of it and the cinematography. It's a very strong movie symbolically, like uh, throughout the entirety of the movie, that everything that it's showing is really uh, metaphorical. Um, I think that they do a really good job with all of the cuts and edits because it, there is a lot. And uh, a lot of times there's like, you know, um, split screen and things like that to kind of throw the viewer off. Um, but it, it, even then, I think that those elements kind of play into the fact that at the uh, outset of the movie, we're kind of meant to have like a false sense of security and then it kind of spirals out of control after that. Uh, I think it does a really good job with showing how that spirals out of control giving voice to the characters um, and not just making them into like quote unquote 
drug addicts. Um, it gives them different characters, uh, different motivations, and that's really what we want. And then also showing how people can get into those situations. You know, it's not just, you know, <laughs> you know the, the normal person who's a drug addict. You know, everybody can be a drug addict in some way. Uh, addiction can strike anyone, and, and that's really what this film is showing and how those things can affect people and make them lose control of their lives. Um, I think it has a really good soundtrack. Um, soundtrack is uh, very uh, cathartic at times. Um, interestingly enough, I found some very similar uh, details in the soundtrack between this one the, and, and Saw. Saw kind of has like the same kind of structure of the, the violin score. Um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, this came first, and you know, but I, I found some similarities between those two soundtracks. Um, but I think that the soundtrack is really good. Like I said, the sound design is really good, and overall, this is a very depressing movie. It real like I, when it ended, I just kind of like sat there and thought for a little bit, <laughs> um, you know, about life and about uh, you know things that can can lead you down the wrong paths and and obsessions and stuff. So I, I think that it really you, does. You, you just wanted to go home and listen to some good, like you want to listen to Neil Young, uh, the needle <laughs> and the damage it's done. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's a really effective movie. It really gets its point across. Uh, it is a difficult film, I think. Um, and uh, I'm really glad I saw it. Still holds up 22 years later. So. All right, so next week we finish out our difficult films month. We're doing Serbian film. No, oh. no, we're not doing a Serbian film. Um, but uh, we're, I mean, the films that I picked, like I didn't, tr I tried not to pick films that I thought were, like I feel like a Serbian film is is really a trollish film, and so that's why I didn't really pick it. Um, there's, there's room for it. Like if we do a difficult films month part two, and if people like point out difficult films that we should do, then we'll, by all means, we'll, we'll have to do, we'll have to do all of Lars von Trier. We'll have to do Nymphomaniac. Yeah. Yeah. But the, but the next one we're doing is Antichrist. And you know how we're doing Antichrist? Willem Dafoe. So we can see Willem Dafoe, Dafoe's oh, penis. That's right. Mm. Willem de penis. That's, that's why we're doing it. Have you seen Antichrist? No, I have not, actually. I've not seen it. So, I'm excited because, again, like, this is another one that people talk about quite a bit that that uh, they say is effective, and um, I'm excited to see what that's about. So, I picked a mix of ones that I knew people say are difficult and then ones that I've seen that I found were difficult. And so, now we're getting into the ones that I've not seen, but... I am excited to see if I find them difficult or not. So it should be a good episode. All right. Well, thanks for listening to our difficult films episode on Requiem for a Dream. We hope you enjoyed. We hope you uh, relived the experience if you can't watch it again. So um, thanks for listening to that. We hope to see you back. <laughs> We're losing you over here. We hope you see you back for our uh, next episode on Antichrist. And if you want to 
Be reminded of when that comes out. You can subscribe to us. We're on pretty much every podcasting app you can think of. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Homebase at Anchor.fm, Good Pods, pretty much everything. Uh, you can subscribe to us on there. Leave us a like and re- uh, review. Really appreciate that. Um, we are also on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us on there, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. We have an email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. You can write to us. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Uh, give us suggestions for Difficult film Films Month Part 2. And then we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. You can donate to us everything that you donate to us. Well, we'll say we'll put it towards uh, new technology, but it's probably going to go towards beer. But anything you can give, we certainly appreciate. All right. Any parting words before we head out? Nope. That's about it. All right. That that concludes our show. Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in next week for Antichrist. And until then, take care.